Dear God, as we come to your word uh, in the middle of, uh, I know, kind of some, some crazy stuff academically this, this time of year, this part of the calendar where there's just a lot going on, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to be open, the ability to focus in on what you have to say to us tonight, that you would train us through your word. Uh, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each person specifically what you want them um, to hear, what you may be calling them to. I ask you that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Last week, we told you that we were making the jump into our third section. And we we basically spent, uh, we walked through Chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, Scott did, and then I took us through this one little transition piece right here that ties this whole narrative together. So we've walked already through chapters 1 through 4, which is creation, humanity, and the fall. This is God starting everything and bringing it together, and then we see how it comes apart uh, through sin entering into the world. And then uh, 5 through 11 shows us the need for covenant people, shows us that the world is going increasingly further away from God, shows us that people are not only increasingly further in their behavior, but in their understanding, that, that there's less and less understanding of what God is actually like, and this is kind of uh, epitomized in the final little section of chapter 11 where uh, in the Tower of Babel, the people are trying to make this tower for what, what seems like to us actually a means of housing God and perhaps bringing food up to God and creating a place like that. They have created God in their own image. So in, in chapters 1 and 2, he creates man in his image. And now in chapter 11, we see human beings trying to create God in their image, uh, a God who has needs. A God that can be controlled. If I can do the right things for him, then maybe he'll do the right things for me. Uh, a God that needs to be taken care of. And this, in the Near East at that time, and, and over much of the world, this is the common understanding of what deity is like, what the gods are like. Uh, figures that can be, if you play your cards right, hopefully kind of manipulated for your own good because, you know, they have needs too. And then in steps this little transition here where we start to talk about the family of Terah or Terah and, and his little group of people. We talked about last night specifically this one son of his by the name of Abram. And it is through Abram that this new section opens up, the establishment of a covenant people. Um, we also talked about how the establishment of a covenant people comes through a person, but not by a person. So it comes through Abram, but it's not by Abram. He's not a, a good and, and amazing guy that God picks to, to make this good and amazing people. He's, from everything we can tell, uh, a pagan idol worshiper, just like the rest of his family, just like everybody else in that region. And God comes to him. Um, by the way, we don't know, more than likely, Abram doesn't know when like God comes to him, he doesn't think capital G God. He thinks, oh, this one. Of, you know, of the 500 other ones, this one is coming to me. So I guess this one likes me right now. And, and that's, that's as far as we can tell. That's, that's all he knows at this point. But, but God, this God named Yahweh, actually hasn't even uh, said his, uh, given his name to Abram yet. Abram doesn't even actually know his full name. He calls him 
El Shaddai or El, which is kind of interesting. That was the way the Canaanites often referred to their gods was with this name El. Um, so he's, he's calling them along the lines of a lot of other people. But we come to this text here and now things really shift with this new focus. It's, it's fascinating and Scott hit on it in the period of history and timeline and stuff. Um, but it's just fascinating just the amount of text even just devoted that you have uh, the creation of the entire cosmos and the universe in two chapters. And then you have this uh, little guy named Abram and he gets 13 chapters, which just shows you where the focus of this text is going, what, he, what the writer is wanting to show us. Uh, so open up to Genesis 12. The very first verse and the very first idea of Scripture in Genesis 1.1 starts with God as the subject and God acting to bring forth what He wants. He speaks. That's, what, that's how Genesis 1.1 starts out. That God speaks and He creates. Um, the very first little section, the very first verse of this section that we're moving into where God is recreating now. He's, re, he's creating, establish, uh, establishing a, a new people. Uh, starts with God as the subject and God speaking to create this new people, just like He spoke to create in Genesis 1.1. Here's what it says, verses 1-3. through 3. Um, We'll read some of them and then we'll summarize some of them, but here's 1-3. through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this God, Yahweh, shows up to Abram and calls him to come with him. Now, from this point, actually, uh, Abram's already made his way from Ur at the time that he, it says he shows up to him in Haran. So uh, he's already made his way from Ur. This is the traditional site of Ur. I show, we showed you the ziggurat of Ur last week. That's where this is located right here. Uh, be, they call it, they, they, well, obviously, they, they found this place. It's called Ur, but also it's called Ur of the Chaldeans. And we know that later on in history, this is where the Chaldeans lived, was in this region. Now, there's some, actually, I didn't know this until I started studying. There's actually some debate whether or not this is the actual Ur that Abram's from. There are a handful of towns and cities as we dig through kind of archaeology and old documents and stuff that went by the name Ur or something very similar to it. And, and there's reason to believe that actually where Abram comes from is further up north uh, for, for a couple different reasons that, that we won't get into fully. But either here or, or somewhere up here, he calls him and Abram comes down on his way and stops in Haran with the rest of his family. Terah and the family are all there. And it's here that he'll get the call to leave the rest of this and then go on down into this land that he'll show you. So God calls Abram to give up three key things in in. In, uh, in the calling that he brings to him. First, he says, I want you to leave your home. He says, I want you to leave your country or your land, your home, however you want to say that. Second, he says, I want you to leave your kindred, your family, your clan. And the third thing he wants him to leave is his father's household, which sounds actually a whole lot like family or clan. More than likely, what this is actually talking about is uh, your birthright, your inheritance, what your father was planning on leaving you. Now, these are three 
critical things for someone living uh, in roughly 2000 BC in the Near East. Your identity is your family. They, they don't have what we have today where you have your own individual identity. Your identity comes from your clan and from the group that you live in. Uh, land is somewhat important, but there's a fairly nomadic people uh, living around then, so that, that may not have been as huge, but family is huge. And then father's household. There's no such thing as like a self-made man or woman back then. You, um, you gain the possessions of your family, and then if you can try to kind of add on to that and build to that so that you can then pass that on to the next generation, you do that. But these three things would have been critical parts of his security and his identity and all of those things, but, but God actually promises, well actually let me say something else here, maybe even greater significance is what this has to do with Abram's religious practice. Because back then, Primarily what people worshipped were territorial gods and or patron gods and goddesses. So we talked about last week, uh, Nana, the moon goddess of Ur, and she was the patron goddess of this city. So they didn't, though there seems to be some belief in like big cosmic gods, um, any belief in that, they knew they shouldn't even waste their time trying to get those gods' attention. So if, you, if you're going to have any luck with a God helping you out and worshiping, you were looking for a God that was from your territory, that oversaw your specific realm, or maybe even more than that, your family gods, kind of like ancestor worship in some places, but they would have family gods. And, and part of your father's household, he didn't just pass on to you his cattle and his property, he passed on to you the family gods. He passed on to you the idols. And so when Abram is called to leave these things, he's calling to uproot himself from the territorial gods and the family gods. And so he's being called away from those things as well. But God doesn't just call him away. He actually promises him something in return. He says, I want you to leave your country. And he says, I'm going to call you to a land that I will give to you and your offspring. And then he says, yes, I want you to leave your kindred, but I'm going to give you many descendants. Actually, it says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But later he'll say, I want to give you many descendants, which is actually crazy talk. Because if you step back just a handful of verses later into verse 1130, chapter 11, verse 30, this is the first time this phrase comes up in Scripture over and over again. What we've seen is this pattern of fruitfulness as a genealogy passes on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and then you hear this screeching halt when you get to chapter 11, verse 30. And it says, Now Sarai, that's Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. So this is the first point in the narrative of Genesis where it, it's not going to get passed on. There's not going to be, and Abram had such and such sons and daughters. Because Sarai is barren, which is considered a terrible thing back then. You are your culture, you are your family, and your ability to pass on your name to the following people. And here God is saying, if you'll leave your family, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you many descendants, which is crazy talk because Abram's wife can't have kids. And then he says, I want you to leave your father's household, your, your inheritance. But he says this, that I will bless you. And blessing in Genesis, in the Bible in general, but in Genesis has to do with being in favor with God and being under his protection and care. 
In other words, God says, yes, you're going to leave your inheritance. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. Um, I want you to trust that rather than your family. I want to trust you, uh, trust that more than you trust the gods um, that you've been worshiping, that your family's been worshiping. And then in verse 3, he says this, and this is a huge verse. And one that I think, uh, I think because it is overlooked, people get a lot of stuff in the Bible wrong. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we know in the Old Testament that Israel is God's chosen vessel, that it is His people that He wants to work with. And He chooses them not because Abram or the rest of the Israelites are any better than anybody else, because they're magnificent or amazing. God will say in Deuteronomy, I chose you because I chose you. That's why. Because I wanted to love you and wanted to make you my people. And so we know that they're significant in Israel. But at the very, very outset of Israel's calling through Abram here, we see that God calling Israel is not for the sake of Israel. That the point of God making Israel His people is not Israel. And so there are a lot of people who, who miss that. that and, and, and they think that the purpose of this stuff is Israel, that, that God is giving Israel a way to be saved and to be His covenant people for eternity. That there are some people who still today make a big deal out of Israel and the land of Israel and making sure the Jews are in Israel because that's where Armageddon and all this stuff is going to go down and that's where God's going to set up his, Jesus is going to set up His throne and His kingdom. You missed Genesis 12, 3. The point of Israel is not just Israel. The point of Israel is that God could use this people to bless the whole world. Of course, the question that you already probably know the answer to, is how does that happen? How does God bless the whole world, all the families, through Abraham and his descendants? The ultimate answer is Jesus, that through Abraham's line, God will send the God-man who will come and make way to redeem and restore broken humanity back to God. But we're actually getting ahead of ourselves if we jump straight to Jesus. I don't know if you remember, we told you at the very beginning of the year that the purpose of the covenant in Genesis is um, the revelation of God's character, is to reveal who He is. This is taking place in a world where nobody knows who the true and real and living God is and what He's like. And they've got all kinds of uh, ideas of what deity is like. And all of them are misconstrued. And so the point of God establishing a covenant people is through this people, God is going to make himself known. He's going to reveal what his character and his attributes are like as we get to watch him interact with people. As we get to watch him create this covenant with the Israelites, we'll get a chance. Uh, Walton, who we keep quoting and coming back to, says this, "Um, Before God resolved the Eden problem, he determined to resolve the Babel problem. So what he means is before he resolved the problem of sin that took place in Eden, he first wanted to make sure he resolved the problem of Babel, which is the confusion about God's identity and what he's really like. Before we go, hey, did you know you can be reconciled to God? God says, first I want you to know who that God is. I want you to know what this God is like that, that you can be redeemed and reconciled back to. And that is a large purpose of what the covenant is and what the calling of Abram is about and what blessing the whole world will be about. And, and if you remember, when you think through the way this, 
this book tells the creation stories compared to what all the creation stories were around this time, around this part of the world at this time. Or the way this book describes the making of humanity compared to the way everybody else described the gods making humanity. It is radically different. And so God calling Abraham interjects, introduces radically different concepts about what deity and what the real God is like. So, Abram is in Haran when he gets the call. He's told, actually, he may have been called up in Ur, but it's at, in 12, 1 through 3 takes place in Haran here. And when he gets that, he makes his way down uh, into the region of Canaan, what will be the promised land. It's about a 500-mile trek. Uh, they say your average caravan back then can move roughly 20 miles a day, and so you're making it there in a month. It takes a month to get down if they don't stop anywhere for very long. And so he makes his way down uh, into Canaan. Like I said, it's 500-mile trek. The text says that he's 75 years old at the time. And when he comes down, he stops for a while in the central here hill country of Palestine. There's this region right here and there are these two towns that get mentioned and they come up a a number of times in scripture. The first is Shechem is where he goes um, and he stops there for a little bit and then he goes down into Bethel which will play a big role in a number of different stories. Right here what you see is uh, this is the Jordan River that runs between uh, the Sea of Galilee and then the Dead Sea down here. And so Uh, right here is where Jesus will do a lot of his ministry and then he'll end up down in Jerusalem which is in the region of Bethel and Shechem down in that area. So Abraham goes down there and it's in this region that God comes to him again and says this, this is the land that I'm going to give to your offspring. This will be yours one day. Um, Then we read verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now this will set up the next part of the story, but what you're going to see throughout Abraham's narrative is there are going to be multiple times where obstacles step in the way of Abram being able to trust God's plan. And sometimes Abram responds well to those, and sometimes Abram does not respond well to those. But this is the first big obstacle. So God tells him, I want you to go down to this land, and if you go there, I'm going to bless you. And this is going to be a land for your people. Which, and if, if they're going to be blessed, that means it's going to be a fruitful land that's going to provide for them and take care of them. And Abram travels 500 miles down there, and shortly after getting there, there's a famine. And he sits in this land that God has called him to that he can't even find food to eat in. And there's got to be this moment. We're never told whether or not Abram, when he gets the call up in Haran, whether or not he argues with God about it. We're never told exactly what happens down here, but you know there's got to be a moment where he thinks, really? This, this is what is promised to me. And again, he, does not, he doesn't fully know what this God is like yet. How does he know that there's not some um, just mischievous deity playing some elaborate prank on him? But he calls him all the way down here, and this is the land I'm giving to your offspring. And then there's a famine. So with the famine, uh, Abram moves down and takes his family down into Egypt. 
Uh, Egypt was less susceptible to getting into uh, problems with famine. Palestine region depends on good rainfall each year, which it got usually, but good rainfall for the crops to come in. Egypt depends on the flooding of the Nile, which takes place every year. So much more reliable. Egypt doesn't deal with famine to the same degree that this area does. But anyway, he would have made his way down here, and then he goes into what they call the Negev. That's like the the, uh, desert area right below Judea, and then into Egypt to find a place to stay, to find food. Um, Egypt, uh, before going in there, he, he has this fear that he's about to step into the king's territory, King Pharaoh's territory. And because of that, uh, he's afraid, his wife Sarai is very beautiful, it says, and he's afraid that, I mean, I know what kings do, kings just take what they want. And if the king wants you to be his wife, then he's just going to, that's, that's it for me. He'll just kill me and take you. And so he concocts this plan with her. I want you to tell everybody when we get in there that you're not my wife, you're my sister. Because I don't want, I don't want anything to happen to me um, if the king thinks he, he might like you. And sure enough, they get there. The people see Sarai and, and Pharaoh's people go to him and say, there's this woman here, she's, she's beautiful, she's amazing, she'd be a perfect addition to your harem. And, and so Pharaoh summons her. And the good news is Abraham's just a brother. And so since he's like the closest of kin to her, uh, Pharaoh gives him all kinds of like possessions, cattle and animals and servants as kind of an exchange for Abram giving his sister to Pharaoh. And so Abram actually kind of benefits from this as Sarah, if you want to call it benefit, as his wife is taken from him into the harem of King Pharaoh. And now at this point, Early in the story, we're, we're only like 11, 12 verses into this. And the entire, uh, the entire promise, the entire establishment of a covenant people already seems to be in jeopardy. Because Abram's not in the land that he, prom- that, that he was promised. And he sits alone in his tent in Egypt with no wife that could ever bring descendants to him. His wife sits in the harem of a king in Egypt. And everything already, like right at the outset, seems to be coming unglued. And then you have in verse 17, these two really significant words that you'll see in Scripture a lot. Anytime you see them, they're worth underlining or drawing like a little circle around or a square around. Verse 17, but Yahweh, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Those words are huge. This is going this way, but God comes in and it moves another direction. Everything is falling apart, but God comes in and things come back together. Um, Here's the rest of that verse. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave me an orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he held. Now, passages like this actually cause problems for some people. Uh, I've read in like atheist books in which passages like these are attacked like crazy. This is the kind of uh, violent, oppressive, patriarchal uh, crap that is the Christian scriptures. When you have heroes of the faith like Abram selling out their own wife just to save their own skin. And this is the kind of stuff that passed for these people back then. 
And this is where it's important for us to recognize the difference. This is important everywhere in Scripture. But always to recognize the difference between prescriptive texts and descriptive texts. Right? So the Bible is full of both. There are prescriptive texts in which it is a text telling you how to live. This is what you should do. Or, do this just like so-and-so did this. Act in this way. And then there are descriptive texts that are merely telling you what happened. And telling that something happened is not the same as condoning that behavior. Any more than when your history teacher describes the Holocaust um, in Nazi Germany um, during the 1940s. They're not condoning it. They're, They're merely describing it. And so don't get confused, and this is also where we can get confused when we, once again, try to make human beings like Abram the hero of the story. Because then we go, okay, well, if he's the hero, then I guess what he's doing is great. Now, here's, here's kind of the thing. The text, the writer never actually says uh, good or bad here. All, all the writer does is just describes what happened. So it doesn't give a shame on Abram. It doesn't give a hooray for him. It just says, this is what happened. Um, but from what I can tell, because of, because of a pattern that seems to take place in Abram's life over the course of his life, he sometimes does really good trust in God, but there are sometimes when he seems to try to uh, take matters into his own hands. God's promised me this. He's promised he's going to take care of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't know about Pharaoh in Egypt and what he might do to me if, I, if he finds out Sarai's my wife. And so he takes matters into his own hands. And every time that happens, it backfires and something kind of goes worse for Abram. And the covenant gets to a place where it at least looks like it's in jeopardy until God steps in. And that is why we remember once again that it is not Abram establishing a covenant people. It is God and God has made a promise that he will do this and God will see it through. doesn't matter how much Abram might screw up along the way. God has set his purpose and he will see it through. Now, some will actually tell you in Genesis 3 that there's a few different blessings. You're going to be blessed, you're going to have land, um, and then all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Um, And I was reading today, one person was saying, actually, those those first two are conditional. God's people will be blessed by God as long as they live in obedience with him. But when they fail to live in obedience with him, Israel... You'll see in the Old Testament, they fall under curse rather than blessing. And they've got the land as long as they're in obedience to him. Uh, they've, uh, but, but when they disobey, they're taken off into exile. But that third promise, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. That one's unconditional. And there is nothing that Israel or Israel, Israel's ancestors, Abram, Jacob, Isaac, anyone else can ever do to undo that promise that God has made. That he is at work in it and he will not be hindered by Pharaoh or by Abram or by anybody else because he is working to establish this plan. And in the next couple minutes, we'll talk more about what that plan plays into throughout Scripture and into our lives today. So take a couple minutes and we'll jump back to it. There we go. All right, so I don't know where you were on March 15th of 2004, but there was a a woman by by the name of Karen Watson. Um, Karen Watson was living in Iraq at the time, 
And a little background on her. So she, she uh, was from Bakersfield, California. She uh, attended this church called Valley Baptist Church, in which she was a, just a really involved member. She was um, leading a Bible study. She, started, she went on her first mission trip there. She started going on several mission trips there. Um, eventually, she's, she also worked for like a juvenile center as a, like a, a guard and like a social worker with some of the, with the kids. And so she's a real tough lady, but had, had just a, a growing and increasing heart for God. And by going on these trips, she, she decided that she wanted to sell everything she had and move to Iraq and work with this team of people to help bring kind of some relief and support to um, this war-torn area, okay? So how many of you, so in 2004, you guys were like, what, kindergarten, pre-K, something like that? I don't know. No? Eight? Six, eight? Early elementary? Okay. Hey, my bad, you were a lot older. I'm so sorry. Um, fresh out of diapers. No, I'm just kidding. So, so March... So she moves there, she, she sells everything, cars, all her possessions, moves to Iraq, is working there. And then in, in March, on March 15th of 2004, she and her, four of her teammates were in a vehicle. Um, they were surrounded by guys with guns, um, AK-47s, and they just opened fire and killed all but, but one. And so, and Karen didn't make it. She didn't survive. In fact, the, the, the woman who did survive, somehow her husband made it out of the car, she made it out of the car, made it to a hospital, and then right before she was going under for surgery, she had 22 um, bullets that hit, that hit her. She, right before she went under surgery, she asked about her husband. They said, oh, he's, he's going he's gonna to be fine. And then she wakes up eight days later in Dallas, and she made it, but nobody else did. Her husband didn't make it. So tragic event that happened. You can look it up and read about it. Um, but what's really interesting about Karen's story specifically is she, she felt this danger. Obviously, she knew where she was going. She knew it was kind of a, a, a dangerous position to be in. And so she knew that it was bad enough to where a year before, in March of 2003, she wrote a letter to her home church and said, do not open unless something happens to me. Unless I die, don't open this. And so when, when the church, their home, her home church, got the call, um, her pastor immediately thought about that letter, went and found it, and dug it out, and, and this is what it says. I want to read it to you. She says, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. Um, one of the most important things to remember right now is to persevere the work. I am writing this as if I am still working among my people group. She said, I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Preach the gospel. 
If Jason Buss is available or his dad, have them sing a pretty song. Be, be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel, in all caps. Give glory to God and honor to our Father. She says, The missionary heart cares more than some think, to, to think is wise, risk more than some think is safe, dream more than some think is practical, expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. And then she lists several of her favorite scriptures, and she says, please use only what you want or feel is best. And then her last line is this, there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too, and my church family, in His care, Karen. So, um, how in the world... Can she say those things? I mean, obviously when she wrote it, she didn't know how she was going to die. Um, but how could she say that, like, obedience was what she was called to? Not comfort, not success. How could she say that, like, her reward is God's glory? And where does she get that? I think... Um, Karen knows something that is, is oftentimes hard to, to swallow and hard to understand, but ultimately she knows something that's absolutely true about God, that, that He is a missionary God, that, that his, his desire is to reach the nations um, and to, to, to reconcile all peoples to Him. And so not, not her comfort, not her immediate Happiness, not she says, not success, but but him. And so she 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 understood this enough to know that this is well worth the cost for her. And and I don't know if that sounds crazy to you or not. Um, it may not. It may, you, you maybe have heard of similar stories, assuming similar people who've left a lot to go to go do things like that. Um, but you know. God doesn't call everyone to do those kinds of moves. But God, I think, desires everyone to have the same heart He does. And so from the very beginning of Scripture, you see God being this missionary God. And so I just want to walk through um, just five like major movements, five major missionary movements of God throughout Scripture. Um, I'm thankful to Andrew Wilson for kind of giving me the, this this simple outline. Um, but I think it's really helpful to kind of see that like this is something that God has been doing from the beginning. And so we see the very first one, the first major movement of God as a missionary is is obviously in creation. We've, we've talked about this, that God created men and women in His image to fill the earth with, with His glory. And so within a few short chapters, we see the destruction of sin. We see um, the need for grace and hope. And we see the reality of judgment. Very quick this happens. We've talked about this over the last several weeks, just how quickly sin spins out of control. You also see God creating a people that become multiple peoples and nations. In chapter 10, actually we didn't talk much about chapter 10, but in chapter 10 most believe 
that is a list of 70 different nations um, that, are, that are described there, or different people groups. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't think that's an exhaustive list. That's just a number that was chosen. Um, 70 different peoples, people groups listed. And then, of course, chapter 11, we see God scattering nations. Um, and they go out, and they're not going as representatives of His glory. And that's the first move. And then the second move comes in our text today. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and promises to, to birth a family that blesses all families. From this one man and this one woman to, to bless, to cre- create this family that would bless all families. And so God's promises come true through, through as we'll see, spoiler alert, through the son of Isaac. Um, and then his grandson, Jacob. And then his great-grandsons, the twelve sons of Jacob, that, that become the twelve tribes of Israel. And you see this nation being birthed. And in the next few centuries, God's promises come true. And He gives them a name. He gives them a land. And they become a nation of great power. And they quickly forget this relationship and, and, and the mission that God has them on. The, the, the responsibilities that, that He's given them to bless all nations. They, they forget this. They lose sight of this. and eventually lands them splitting into two, a northern Israel and southern Judah. And they become so consumed with, with bowing down to um, idols and, and giving into and looking just like the other nations that they forget their purpose to bless the nations, which is kind of an interesting point um, or side note, I guess, is that like you, you really, you and I can't look like, act like, live like everyone else and then expect to try to bless everyone else. Like if we truly have a life-changing message that, that will bless people for eternity, then how, how is wanting the same thing the world wants chasing after the same things that the world chases after, looking and living like, um, it's, it just doesn't work that way. God, God calls His people and sets them apart so they, so they can actually bless the world. That seems to be the way God sets it up. And that comes to the end of that movement, and then the next one comes in, uh, this, this third movement, which is God calling prophets to remind His people of their covenant and to call them to repentance. To, to call, God recognizes that in order for His people to bless, to, to carry out God's glory throughout the earth and to bless all peoples, that they need to turn back to Him. They need to be in right relationship with Him. And so He does. He sends these missionaries, He sends these prophets to His own people to call them back to Him. Kind of a, um, an interesting note as well. During this time, during the period of the prophets, there is only one missionary sent out to foreign nations. One missionary. Anybody want to guess who he is? Jonah. Jonah. And, it, and he, he wasn't excited about it at all. Fought it tooth and nail. Kicking, he went kicking and screaming, so to speak. Spit up right onto dry land. He goes and he reluctantly preaches this message of repentance to the Ninevites and forgiveness and grace. And, he, and they do. They, they repent and he is ticked about it. 
Like, I don't know if you've read the story of Jonah in a while. It's not, it's not the one that you probably read as a little kid. Um, he ends just ticked off. And I think, I think if, if not the point, a major point in that story is, is like Jonah's heart for the nations was similar to the people of Israel. Like he was modeling a, like he had, they had so f- gotten so far away from God's heart for the nations that he was truly ticked when, it, when a, another people group repented and received grace. So, but despite, despite all their disobedience, like God through the prophets was making promises and, and letting them know like, like the mission is still exists, it still is there. And so in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be called my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserve of, of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So the, the, the Old Testament ends. In Malachi, you can read the last chapter, ends promising um, salvation and judgment that's coming. And then silence happens. And there's, we think, approximately 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, where God never speaks through a prophet. And then, and then the fourth movement arrives. Jesus comes on the scene, and He brings forgiveness and salvation for all people. He comes preaching the kingdom. He comes um, preaching repentance. And there's this great story in Luke chapter 2. This, this old man named Simeon, he decides he wants to... Um, well, actually, he didn't decide. The Holy Spirit had promised him that he was going to see the Messiah before he died. So he's there in the temple. And, and Mary and Joseph come bringing Jesus to dedicate him in the temple. And when he sees Jesus, he knows he's the one. Listen, listen to what Simeon says in Luke 2. It says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So, so this promise comes to about Jesus right from the beginning. Like the mission of God is still in full swing. And so Jesus comes and he gathers 12 and then, he, and, then, and then he has 70 that follow him. And he lives this perfect life. He lives the life that Adam couldn't live. He lives the life that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, couldn't live. And Jesus lives this perfect life of obedience to God and he dies a sacrificial death and he raises from the dead and he, and he conquers the two things that, that 1 Corinthians 15 says, the two things that stand between you and me and eternity with God is sin and death, and Jesus conquers both through His death and resurrection. And then, it, and then His final words are recorded in Acts 1.8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in, Jer- in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then Act 5, or Movement 5, comes. And followers of Jesus spread out and witness to the forgiveness and salvation found only in Him. So, act, uh, uh, you know, 
Peter comes on the scene and Peter preaches this sermon. And you see what happened in Acts chapter 2. We maybe hinted, hinted at this, talked a little bit about this last week, but the reversal of the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, you have all these nations there and God confuses their language and spreads them out. And in Acts 2, at Pentecost, you have all these nations, people, Jews from all over, different languages coming to one place and through the Holy Spirit speaks and they all understand. It's the, it's the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Um, and so they, they leave, they go back. And some believe that like there, there were Christians, there were Jews that were there from Rome that take the gospel to Rome. And, and so when, when Paul writes to this church in Rome, it's, it's a direct connection to that day at Pentecost. And so everywhere these followers of Jesus go, they go as missionaries carrying the gospel and, and church planters. Because everywhere they go, the gospel is preached and people come to know Jesus and then a, a church, an ecclesia, is formed. And so everyone is a missionary and everyone is a witness. In fact, one of my favorite stories is just really one, one verse in Acts at the beginning of 8. Right after Saul ravages the church, it says, it says, and the church spread out and they carried the gospel, preaching the gospel everywhere they went. From the very beginning of this thing, it, it wasn't, there wasn't supposed to be professional Christians who, who only preached the gospel. Everyone had the, had the good news. Everyone went and, and spread the good news. This thing has always been um, a part of the DNA. And so one such missionary named Paul wrote this letter to this church in Rome, and he says at the very beginning, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descendant from, the, from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, is uh, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Then he says in chapter 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So this this missionary God has been on the scene from the beginning. Um, and God has been on mission. And, and the fact that you and I are sitting in this room talking about Jesus is, is proof that, that God has been on mission. I, mean, I, don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever sat and thought about the, the person who, who told you about Jesus or maybe who led you to Christ and then who led that person and then who led that person and, and, and don't you wish you could follow that all the way back to see where that began? And it's somewhere it begins in this small group of Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so God is on mission, and the question is, are you? And you don't have to go to Iraq like Karen. You don't have to go to Spain. Um, you don't have to go anywhere else to be on mission. This is, this is something that God has called us to do, and this is something that He wants um, for us, but we want to talk to you about like what this can look like, and 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 we want to give you opportunities where you can take advantage of the season of life you're in um, to to be to expand your view of God's 
desire to reach the world. And so I want to talk about, uh, actually in a moment, Kelsey and Rachel are going to come up and talk about their experience in Spain. But I want to mention an opportunity you have just in spring break um, to Albuquerque. So every year we've, well, except for last year, but for seven years in a row, this will be number eight, we've gone to Albuquerque to partner with this church. And this church is super connected and involved in serving the city, and they have been from, from day one. And we've loved partnering with them. And so we're going to go there in, in, in March of this year. Um, and really our goal isn't to, to actually... Our goal never is to really save anybody. That's, that's God's goal. Our goal is to serve, specifically in Albuquerque, is to serve the people who are serving Albuquerque for Jesus. And so we'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll get to know lots of different ministries and, and ways in which people are reaching Albuquerque. Um, but Spain is a similar deal. The goal of Spain isn't just for you to go and to like, save Spain. God, God's he's got that figured out. He's got that covered. He's on it. But our hope for you is that you would be, you'd be open to some of these experiences to, to see how God would want to move in you and to help you see His heart, His missionary heart for the world. So I'm going to have Kelsey and Rachel come up.